to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. And now we're going to hear from Luke chapter 2 of that story of Jesus in the temple. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then they went down to Nazareth with, sorry, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. Let's pray, friends. Heavenly Father, we thank you for inspiring all scripture by your Holy Spirit. And we ask now that by that same Spirit, you would speak to us, that we may know you, that we might know who we are and where we belong. Amen. Christmas does afford, for some of us, that time to reflect. Maybe as you sat around the table at dinner time or lunchtime, or both, on Christmas Day. Wow, this is my family. This is where I came from. What hope is there for me? I'm a man with a very bald father and two bald grandfathers. My future is secure. As you look around the room, you think, well, this is, this is who I am. My personality, my traits is shaped by these people around me, by the genes that they've passed on to me. It's a time of reflecting on who you are and where you belong. Maybe Christmas is a time of dissonance for you, where you look at your family and you think, I don't really like you that much. I don't really, I'm not pulling in the same direction as you. It's weird for me to be going back to where I started because I've moved in a different direction to where you are. 
Both of these things are common experiences for anyone who's growing up. And as we think about the Lord Jesus this morning, we're going to start by looking at him growing up and this sense of dissonance and belonging that he feels and think about how it reflects on who you are and where you belong. So if you've got a Bible, please crack into Luke chapter 1. As uh, Roger Bray mentioned earlier, we're spending the time between now and Easter sitting with Luke as he journeys with Jesus and thinking about who our Lord and Master is. In some of the Gospels, you have to wait till the very end to work out why this was all put together. John chapter 20. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But in Luke, Luke very helpfully says, Hey everyone, this is why I'm writing, Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4, I'm writing that you may be certain of what you've heard about Jesus already. Andrew Errington used to talk about the Gospels being like portraits of people. We've been watching The Crown, Leah and I together lately, um, a Netflix series about the royal family. Uh, And in one of the episodes we watched recently, Winston Churchill gets his portrait painted and he hates it because he looks old and decrepit, which he is. He looks afraid of the future, which he is. And like any good artist, the artist sees the person as they are, not how we like to see ourselves as we would like to be, with the soft edges and the glow. Luke draws up an account. Can you see it there in chapter 1, verse 1 of Luke? Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Thinking about Luke as a portrait will help us as we journey from here to Easter. I want you to consider what it's like to paint this picture of Jesus. The great thing about portraits is we can all do a sketch of someone and they're all different and they're all right. Maths teachers hate this sort of thing. I'm a maths teacher. How can all you paint something different and you all be right? That's just frustrating. But it's the way that painting works. Luke is drawing up his account. What sort of account is it? Well, firstly, it's an account of things that have been fulfilled. He says that in verse 1 there. Things that have been fulfilled. Things that were promised and came true. So as we journey through Luke, it's going to be helpful to keep that in mind. How is this a fulfilment of something? How is this... God making his promises sure. How is this something that we can trust? The second thing about this account is that it's been handed down. You see there in verse 2. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Whenever you're thinking of a historical account, which Luke's is, you ask yourself, can I trust this? And Luke's saying that Whatever he's written down, he got from people who saw it. And this is just how we do history. If you weren't there, you have to find someone who was and listen to their account and work out how it fits with the other accounts of people who were there. One eyewitness, eh, not that trustworthy. Multiple eyewitnesses paint a picture which, when held together, is trustworthy. 
Notice as well, though, that this is a biased account. <gasps> I know, you've got to acknowledge that in any piece of writing. The writer has a place from which they're coming. They have an opinion. And Luke declares it there at the end of verse 2. Eyewitnesses and servants of the word. By the way, if you're a Christian, this is one of your nicknames. You are a servant of the word. You're a person who's put their trust in the word of God, Jesus himself, and all that God has spoken. Luke is saying, I asked the Christians to remember what they saw about Jesus because they're the ones who care the most. They're the ones who have the most invested. And so, yes, we should be aware that we have a tainted source, but I don't think it's tainted in a bad way. It's tainted in a way that helps people actually care about what they've seen in Jesus. And so Luke says, with all that in mind, the fulfilment, the stuff that's been handed down, I've carefully investigated, verse 3, everything from the beginning, I'm writing you an orderly account. An orderly account. It's what you do whenever you write a story. You can be tricky if you're into time travel and put some of the bits that happen at the end near the start just to throw people off the scent. We've all read weird novels like that or seen movies like that. But Luke does exactly what he says, an orderly account so that you will know for certain what you know about Jesus. And so Luke's account begins there in chapter 1 verse 5 in the time of Herod, king of Judea, and we get this orderly account that leads up to the story that we read a minute ago about Jesus in the temple. So with your permission, we're going to just look at the broad brushstrokes of Luke's orderly account to see how it leads up to that moment at the temple, to consider where does Jesus' opinion of himself come from and his sense of belonging. Who is he and where does he belong? Well, Luke's account doesn't start with Jesus himself, but with John the Baptist. Can you see there in 1 verse 5? In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there's a guy called Zechariah working in the church. Is Elizabeth also a priestly descendant? They're good guys, verse 6, upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Not a category I would put myself in, but there they are. They're upstanding citizens and they're promised a son in their old age. And for those of you who know the Bible story, it's not a common, it's not an uncommon experience. Old people yearning for kids promised them in their old age, right at the beginning of the Bible. Abraham and Sarah, she's 90. When God says you're going to be having a kid, she goes, <laughs> yeah, right. Elizabeth as well is promised a child, but not just a child, but a child with a job description. John the Baptist is going to be a bit of a kooky one. Have a look down in chapter 1, verse 16. Many of the people of Israel, this son will bring back to the Lord their God, who go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist is coming and he's going to get people ready for Jesus. You can see why Luke puts this in his account right at the start. Get ready for Jesus. 
Another baby is promised as chapter 1 unfolds. We've just heard the Christmas story, and so I won't delve in it too deeply, but have a look at verse 32 at how Jesus is described to Mary. When the angel appears to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby, just look at how Luke describes this child who will be born. Verse 32, chapter 1, he will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. In five different ways in the space of two verses, the angel says to Mary, this kid is a king. He'll be great, the son of God. He'll have a throne, he'll reign and he has a kingdom. It's the same thing, five different ways. This child, unimpressive as he will be, as all babies are, this child will be a king. This is who he is. And Mary is a model, down in verse 45, of how to respond to the things that are promised. Verse 45, blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said. Mary believes the angel. This is in stark contrast to the first story in the chapter where John, uh, where John's dad is told, you can have a son, and John doesn't believe. And so he's mute throughout the whole pregnancy. Maybe a delight to his wife. Uh, you could say that it's dumb not to believe the promises of God. See what I did there? Dumb? Never mind. Okay, so Mary believes that God will fulfill his promise, that this son will be great, a king who will reign. God is using human hands and hearts to fulfill this promise. As we turn into chapter 2, Jesus is born. He moves, well, is moved by his family, to fulfil God's promises of where the Christ will come from, he's moved from Galilee up to Bethlehem, just outside Jerusalem. And the shepherds hear the good news. The shepherds, the outsiders, the humble ones, they're filled with great joy because a saviour has been born, Christ the Lord. Jesus' identity is being built by Luke's orderly account. And as we arrive in chapter 2, verse 22, we see Jesus' first trip to the temple. And we know that we're going to arrive at the temple again in a little while, but here we are the first time, chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise Jesus, he was named, the name the angel had given him before he'd been conceived. And when the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. You show up at church and say, this baby is from you, God, and they belong to you. one of the miracles of childbirth that a new life comes and at the start of every new generation 
God's people were told, remember where this life is from. This child, this future of our family is yours, Lord. Jesus' first trip to the temple shows to whom he belongs. He belongs to God. The rest of chapter 2 in the lead up to Jesus' next trip to the temple talks about fulfilment even more. There's Simeon, Simeon in verse 25, waiting, waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled, waiting to see the Christ. And when he sees Jesus, have a look at verse 30. What What does Simeon say? He's singing, my eyes have seen your salvation. When you see Jesus even when he's a baby. When you see Jesus, you see God's salvation. This is the message we have when we talk to our friends and our family, to our co-workers and our neighbours. When you see Jesus, you see God's salvation. Simeon's overjoyed. This salvation, which Simeon describes as something, verse 31, that's been prepared prepared in the sight of everyone. This is that fulfilment language. Not just for Israel, but for everyone, all the Gentiles, as well as to God's people, Israel. And Anna's there in the temple, verse 37, a widow until she was 84. She never leaves the temple, but worships night and day, fasting and praying. She's this embodiment of longing, fasting and praying. I mean, you might feel like you need to do that after Christmas, but she's at it every day. Fasting, a physical sense of yearning for God to fulfill what he's promised. She's waiting for God. And when she sees Jesus, look what she says. Verse 38, coming up to them, to Mary and Joseph, that very moment she gives thanks to God and speaks about Jesus to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be bought back, purchased back at the moment under Rome. But the place where God dwells will be purchased back with this child. And so, having their first trip to the temple completed, verse 39, Joseph and Mary go back home to Galilee, to Nazareth. And Jesus grows up. That's how authors work. See there in verse 40? And then a whole lot of stuff happened that I'm not going to tell you about. Verse 40. The child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. But every year, verse 41, every year, Joseph and Mary went back to the temple. Every year, they would have remembered not just God's great saving act of judgment and mercy, the exodus, the eating of kebabs, you know, dried bread, that, that led up to remembering God's judgment of Egypt and foreign gods, God's mercy on his people and the blood of the lamb wiped on the door frames of the houses. Every year at Passover, Joseph and Mary returned to the place where Jesus was held up and they remember what was said about him. 
And this time, when Jesus is 12, they do the same thing. The details of verse 42 and 43 are pretty thin. You have to imagine your way into the scenario. Jerusalem, not a really big town, but at the time of Passover, filled with throngs of families, each coming from the scattered places to celebrate. And it's a bit like a family camping trip. When we were on beach mission a few years ago, there used to be families who camped in the caravan park and the parents would pretty much just sit around the barbecue or down on the beach and the kids would just go everywhere. I didn't have kids at the time. I had my own judgments on that. Now as a parent, I totally understand. (laughs) And I think Jesus' trip to Jerusalem would have been like that. The whole family's there together. And so verse 43 makes a bit more sense. While his parents were returning home, Jesus stayed behind, but they were unaware of it. He's with the family, he's with Auntie Joe. it's going to be fine. In fact, it's a nice relief. But when they didn't find him, verse 45, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, after three days, three days, Mary and Joseph running around Jerusalem looking for Jesus. He looks like every other kid in the Middle East unimpressive in appearance he's described but there's Jesus in the temple courts sitting among the teachers listening and asking them questions and when Mary finds Jesus after three days she says what every mum says to every son who's been on the lamb it's over the page in a pew bible verse 48 when his parents saw him they were astonished I think there are other words that you could have included there, but Luke goes with astonished. I think astonished that he's in the temple. Not just glad and relieved. Astonished, his mother said to him, it's classic mum, isn't it? Son, why have you treated us like this? I'm so glad to see you. No, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And frankly, fair enough. Jesus' reply, although we're used to it, is ridiculous. Verse 49, why were you searching for me? Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know, Jesus is saying, didn't you know who I am? You were there when the angel said, didn't you know who I am? Didn't you know where I belong, Jesus says? Didn't you know, verse 49, that I had to be in my father's house? Not, didn't you know that I might be here? Didn't you know that I needed to be somewhere around here in the vicinity? No, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. It's a common response to the sayings of Jesus. And after this, in verse 51, Jesus goes back home to Nazareth and is obedient to his parents. His mother treasured all these things in her heart, Luke records, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. Jesus knew who he was, even at 12. And I've got questions about how he came to know it. Can you imagine Jesus 
hearing week by week the Psalms and the prophets, the writings and the law, and growing in understanding that he is at the centre of all God's plans from Adam to the end. Jesus grows in understanding of who he is and where he belongs. And as the story of Luke unfolds, Jesus' trips to Jerusalem become more and more important. In chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus is going to set his face to Jerusalem, is Luke's description in 9.51, where he will start walking methodically to the cross in knowledge of the opposition that awaits him, in knowledge of his coming death and resurrection. Jesus sets his face once more to Jerusalem because he knows who he is and he knows where he belongs. Jesus knows that he belongs, yes, in his father's house. He knows that he belongs on the cross as the king who will reign, the king whose kingdom will be shaped by the way the king uses his power in humble service of those who cannot help themselves. Jesus knows who he is and he knows where he belongs. Jesus says in John 14, when the disciples are worried about where he's going, he says, you know where I'm going? I'm going to my father's house. Jesus' father's house is the temple until the temple is ripped in half at Jesus' death. And it becomes apparent that the thing that the temple pointed towards, the Father's real house, is heaven itself. Jesus knows that he belongs with the Father because he is the Father's Son. And Jesus says to the disciples, I'm going to my Father's house to prepare for you a room. There's many rooms, you don't have to worry, and I will take you to be there with me. As we wander with Jesus in and out of Jerusalem, towards Jerusalem, we're going to be asked again and again to consider who is this guy and where does he belong? And as we look at Jesus, we're meant to reflect on ourselves. Who am I and where do I belong? Who is my family? Where is my treasure? Where do I fit in? And the answer's right in front of us. Who are you? You belong to Jesus because he is the king. You belong to him because he's purchased you with his blood. That's the words of 1 Corinthians 6, right? Why should you honour God with your body? Because you were bought at a price. You belong to Jesus. You are not your own. That's countercultural. That's not what this society thinks. You, you are your own person? No, actually, Christians don't think that. You belong to God. And so your desires, authentic as they may be, don't define you anymore because now you belong to God and he's put his mark on you. Not just the impermanence of tattoos. Yeah, that's right, impermanence of tattoos. You can get them taken off. But you've been given the Holy Spirit as a sign that you're his. You belong to God. 
and you belong with him. That's why all your yearnings for life to be better, for justice to come, for proper community, all these things are found only when we are with God in heaven. You should never feel at home here. And if we do, it's a sign that we've forgotten where we belong. You belong to God and you belong with him. In a few moments, we're going to eat and drink to remember what Jesus has done, what he did every year at the Passover. As you eat and drink this morning, remember your Christ who knew who he was and knew where he belonged and be thankful, be energised to remember who you are and where you belong. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again that you do speak what we need to hear. And so we thank you again this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his birth, for the way you fulfilled your promises of old in him. We thank you that he knows what it's like to be a child and to grow in knowledge and understanding of you and your plan for the world. Make us like him, we pray, that we might know you and know our place in your plan. Father, we thank you for Jesus in the temple. We thank you that he knew where his home was, that he knew who his father was. And we pray you'd make us like him that we might yearn to be at home with you and that you might speed that day. And we pray all these things with thankful hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.